If you can, turn to 1 Thessalonians. We're going to jump right in and uh, try and keep an eye on the clock today. Uh, but 1 Thessalonians, we're in a series going through that book, uh, which is believed to be the oldest book in the New Testament, and uh, trying to see kind of what we're able to learn from it. And we began kind of in the first chapter uh, learning just a little bit of what was going on with the writing of this letter. We saw the greeting that Paul gave to these people as he had been driven from that city and then later was writing back to them after he had received a report of how they were doing. And then when we got to chapter 2, Paul uh, or uh, Pete Kelly preached on chapter 2 and, and talked about how Paul was, was defending himself, that he wasn't a charlatan, he wasn't someone that was profiteering, he wasn't coming through their town for his own gain, um, but he was with them in a certain kind of way. And we see something interesting here, if we want to pick it up. Uh, I want to kind of pull the thread from earlier in the book here. So pick it up in the second half of verse 7. Uh, well, we'll just start in verse 7. So he's talking about how they were with the, the, the people at Thessalonica. And it says, instead, uh, we were like young children among you, innocent. Just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you. Uh, it's a misnomer um, to think that all the references in the Bible are, are masculine ones. We see a lot of feminine ones. Even Jesus himself talks about looking at Jerusalem and that his heart would be like as a, a mother hen wanting to, to gather up and to protect uh, all that is in Jerusalem. And we see, uh, we see Paul going to that same kind of intimacy metaphor here of I was with you as a nursing mother uh, who's caring for her children, and we cared for you that way. And it continues, because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. We were all in. And surely you remember, brothers and sisters, our toil and our hardship. We worked night and day in order not to burden, uh, be a burden to anyone while we preach the gospel of God to you. You are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. For you knew... For you know that we dealt with each of you, and then here we go, interesting, other half of a metaphor almost. Uh, we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and his glory. And it says, uh, we thank God continually because uh, when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as human word, but as it actually is, the word of God, uh, for you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own people the same things that those churches suffered from the Jews who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and also drove us out. They displease God and are hostile to everyone in their effort to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. In other words, our ministry is to bring in the full measure of the body of Christ, both Jew and Gentile, uh, those who were near and those who were far. And in doing this, it stirred up a reaction. And it continues now in verse 17. But brothers and sisters, when you were orphaned by being separated for a short time, uh, when we were orphaned from being separated for you, uh, from you for a short time, out of our intense longing, we made every effort to see you. For we wanted to come to you. Certainly I, Paul, did. And again, Satan uh, blocked our way. For what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and our joy. So there's something really fascinating going on here. 
uh, where Paul is writing in, in this first kind of letter, this first book of the New Testament, to a group of people that he has helped in some ways birth or, or bring about. Um, he, is, he has brought them into existence as a community, as a church. He's nursed them along in the basics of the faith, in, in the basics of what it means to be a community, to love one another. He's encouraged and admonished them as a father. Uh, he's given them his whole life as best he could, not only when he was with them, but also when he's away from them, he has this intense longing to know how they're doing. Again, like a parent for a child. Um, there's something about this that we have to understand that the, the connection between a pastor and their church, and even more so a church planter and their church, is, is incredibly deep. Um, both Pete and I planted churches in the same month, uh, October, 10 years ago. Um, we both felt called. We both worked really hard. We both steered our lives that way, made many sacrifices. And when you go to plant a church or start a church, you do it because you're convicted that there's a reason for it. That something isn't the way it ought to be uh, so that you don't just kind of flow into what's ready-made already or, or what's in a community, but that there's, there's a reason to reach people and something to call them to that if, if you don't do what's burdening you, they're not going to be called to. For me, 10 years ago, it was this conviction that there's this thing called cultural Christianity or legalism that really makes kind of church so much about going through the, the routines or getting the kind of religious ritualistic behaviors right, but that it misses the fact that this stuff's really real. I believe that this stuff is really real. I believe in God. I believe that Jesus died for my sins. I believe that he rose again. And I believe that all of my life I can hold a little bit looser because if I were to die today, I wouldn't cease to exist, but I'd be reconciled back to or be able to return back to my creator. Uh, and that I would, I would, in that place, find fullness of joy. And so this, this conviction that we're not just playing a game here. Um, it's not just about entertaining people on a Sunday morning or giving people nice fuzzies or, or going through the motions, but that there's something really true about what it is we're doing and who we're worshiping. And so we have to teach the New Testament. We have to go back to that and recover that wild, kind of reckless truth of it and not just kind of live within what we've, we've grown up with as our cultural traditions in modern America and that we just look each week to kind of hit those same buttons again because we all like routine and nobody likes change, right? So for me, the desire to plant a church was to really try and go back to the New Testament. This is Rick Gerhardt and I met around this passion. Rick's the chair of our elder board. Before Antioch even started, he's uh, one of two people that were our first elders. And it was saying, we can do something different here. Uh, the, the mission statement we have to be an authentic expression of Christianity in Bend, Oregon, and to have a shaping voice in global Christianity. Crazy thing about that is the, the shaping voice in global Christianity, we had that vision before I had ever even started traveling or before the Justice Conference had ever even happened. And I can tell you where it was at, at Summit High School, Rick and I sitting on the steps an hour before church one Sunday and lamenting the voice that was out there at a leadership level in evangelicalism. 
that, that people that come from big cities, have big followings or big money, end up having a voice that steers or shapes or influences the rest of evangelicalism. And there were some things that we were just really disappointed with at the level of intellectual rigor, at the level of what we felt was honesty, at the level of what we felt like had enough of the, the biblical New Testament context of a vision for what following Christ would look like. And so the conversation with Rick and I was, we should do that. Not because we're proud or arrogant or think we're that great, but we were looking at, at what it was and saying, um, we feel like we could do better, and if we could do better, then we should do better. That's where that vision came from. Um, it was just a desire that truth matters and that the community that's going to come around, it's not about the size of the community. It's not about a whole lot of things, the money, the buildings. It's, it's about a, a radical commitment to following Jesus and finding each other in that. Um, so Paul is writing with that same kind of passion that I have given my life to travel where the gospel has, I, I wished I had a map this morning, uh, I couldn't find it in time, but just the, the area of Greece that Paul's traveling to where, where nobody had taken the gospel before, he's going into these places and bringing this good news. And so the interesting thing is when he talks to Timothy, about the qualifications uh, for an elder. Um, he talks about that this elder should manage his own family well and see that his children obey him and, and that uh, he must do so in, in a, manner, ma uh, a manner worthy of full respect. And then you get this parenthetical because if anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? In other words, Paul is saying the, the relationship with a pastor or a church planter, or something like that, ought to be like the relationship of a parent with, with their household. That you can look at the household and understand something about the leadership of that individual. Um, interesting thing about this is when, when I started Antioch, I was 34 years old. And I was, I was really nervous that people would, and I had three kids... Now I have four, but I was really nervous that, that people would look at me and go, uh, you're young, and they probably did. Um, so I tried really hard to hide my youngness and probably sounded really silly a lot, right? Uh, but I was really aware of just being young and that I, I had nothing, nothing to demonstrate or to prove uh, what it was that was my calling, my passion, or my, my abilities within to that, right? Um, this verse... As, as I've been raising my family, as Tamara and I have been raising the kids for this last uh, decade or so, we've worked really hard to uh, help them understand that they need to hide from the church anything uh, and everything um, strange about us. <laughs> and, uh, and we've done a pretty good job of, of coaching them um, to, to pretend. <laughs> no, uh, I feel a little bit better um, because... Uh, Time has gone by. Uh, I have kids. I know what it means to be a parent. Uh, I've been really, really sick. And, and so I, I kind of know what it means to have a little bit of the youthful zeal taken off and to change my motives from ambition to just, hey, what do I care about? What really matters at the end of the day? And, and the interesting thing is this is kind of the, the older version of Paul that we're seeing. Paul has been stoned. He's, he's had his own physical ailments. It says when, uh, if you go back to the book of Acts, 
uh, if you remember the story of Paul, who used to be called Saul, that when they stoned Stephen, so the first martyr of the New Testament church, in Jerusalem, uh, a little bit after Jesus dies, they have this deacon named Stephen, and he gets rounded up by uh, the religious leaders, the Jews, that are a little bit worried about what's going on, and he preaches right at them, prophesies to them. They end up uh, throwing their cloaks, stoning him to death, and throwing their cloaks at the feet, it says, of a young man named Saul. Um, they were throwing their cloaks at the feet, one, so they could throw the stones, two. It was a symbolic way of gesturing that I am a witness to this blasphemy. Um, I've heard it. I've witnessed it. Here's my cloak. Um, but Saul was a young man. Um, the Saul we're seeing now as Paul traveling through Greece using his Greek name, not his Hebrew name. But Paul uh, is, is now a seasoned guy on his second missionary journey who cares really deeply about the people that he's ministering to. And there's something interesting about that because we can compare it or contrast it with a negative example of Peter. Peter did many great things. Peter was the anchor of the church. But we see something in the book of Galatians uh, about Peter. So if you want to turn there, um, we can read it uh, real quickly. So the book of Galatians, in chapter 2, we're going to read in verse 11. Now, Galatians is uh, arguably the second book of the New Testament. It's, it's a, a letter written not just to one church, but to the churches of a region. So these are the first Greek-speaking churches that Paul went and planted. Again, uh, with that passion, like a parent for for their, his, his or her children, uh, these chur uh, churches in Greek-speaking area of Galatia. And so after he plants these churches, they're rooted and they're going. Some people begin to go to those churches and say, you can't be a Christian. Like, you can't be a Christian. Unless you become a Jew first, then you can be a Christian. And so they begin to go and teach this, and it, and it throws everything into turmoil and Paul had, had petitioned the leaders in Jerusalem, what say you about this? And they end up affirming his gospel. And, it, and this has happened prior to him going to Thessalonica. And so while he's on that second missionary journey, he, he probably pens this letter. And then it slowly begins making its way around. It's, it's what's called a circuit letter that a writer or somebody would begin to take it around to a, a various uh, number of churches. And in this book, to the, the churches of Galatia, uh, there's something really interesting as Paul recounts a story of Peter. Because Peter had come up from Jerusalem because, frankly, I think he wanted to see what the Holy Spirit was doing at this church called Antioch. And when he gets there, he falls in love with it and he's eating meals with people and he's making friends with Gentile believers. And it's this wonderful uh, thing that's happening. And then... Uh, and then when Cephas came to Antioch a second time, Paul opposes him to his face. This is chapter 2, verse 11. When Cephas, that is Peter, the apostle Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, uh, in other words, Jewish men from Jerusalem, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles, 
because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group, the Jewish leaders. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas, his kind of best friend, even Barnabas, this encourager, was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth, not, not Gentiles, know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, not the ritual, not the actions, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because the works of the law no one will be justified. By the works of the law, no one will be justified. So there's something really interesting, I think, when Paul is talking about coming to the Thessalonian church and, and being all in with them and living a life that they could see, that they understood had no selfish gain to it, and that he's doing this with Jew and Gentile alike, not drawing any distinction between the two, that he's really saying the mistake that can be made here is that you would succumb to peer pressure. That when the, the cool kids, the, the ones that are pretty high up on the, the religious ladder, when those people come around, that you'd begin to act differently. You would talk differently. You would focus on maybe different values than you were talking about before they came. And you'd basically be shaping your words or your actions so that those people, those leaders, would accept you and affirm you. That the temptation here for a preacher would be to care too much about public opinion. And, and Paul is really setting himself up as, I called out Peter when he did that. And then when I go to these other churches, look at my life and see how I'm not doing that. I'm not, I'm not changing my message to make the Jewish people in that town happy or the religious elite happy. I'm centering the whole thing on the gospel of Jesus Christ. That in Christ, he has removed the dividing wall of hostility. So turn to the book of Ephesians with me. We'll read this real quickly. But in Ephesians... Chapter 2, it says in verse 14, For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in, the, in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose, Jesus, was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. The message Paul is bringing is this message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which means when we are all in Christ, we therefore are united without distinctions writes to the churches in Galatia the same thing in a famous passage. Uh, again, you can turn, flip right over to that. Um, but uh, I'm jumping around, so I lost bookmarks. So you're going to just have to bear with me for two seconds. Um, and I left my phone back there, which is how I search for things. Uh, 
All right, I'm just going to paraphrase, which is lame because, all right, I'm stubborn, I'm Dutch, I don't know why I can't find this, Peter, you in here? (laughs) Neither male nor female, why am I not finding this? putting Pete on the spot because when he doesn't know, it'll deflect attention from me. Um, it's, it's, right, it's right here. Thank you. Oh, I was in Ephesians. That's, that's why. I, uh, I, in, I, I thought I was in Galatians, and I'm like, I know it's on this page. Um, it's wrong, wrong book. Um, I, all right. So again, after the verdict that, that justifies the gospel that Paul's been giving, he's writing to these churches to reaffirm what I taught you was true. You got hear me now, he's saying to these people, don't slip back into an old way of seeing things. What was the old way of seeing things? In your Bible, there's the word old and there's the word new. What's the old way of seeing things? The law, the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, how did you come close to God? Mumbling. Your mom probably taught you. It's like talking with marbles in your mouth, right? How did you come close to God? Sacrifices. Where did you do the sacrifices? At the temple. How did you come close to God? Actually, physically close to God? The temple. Right? So you'd go to Jerusalem because God dwelt, his spirit dwelt in the temple. And when you came to that temple, what would happen as you, as you approached the temple? And you should ask me, Ken, what would happen? Well, it depends. You see, that's a, that question's too simplistic that you guys are asking. What, what would happen would depend on who you are. It would depend on who you are. If you were a Greek, in other words, a non-Jew, if you were a Gentile, you would have to stop in the court that was designated for the Gentiles, that was farther or farthest from the temple where God dwelt in the Holy of Holies. Interestingly, around the time of Jesus, because it was big business evidently to sell animals for sacrifice to the Jewish pilgrims, and they needed somewhere to kind of sell this stuff, you know, like when you're making room for something, um, you have to move something else out. Ironically, it was this, this court of the Gentiles that they began to set up shop with all of their kind of flea market, uh, bazaar type things, selling doves and, and lambs to people, Jewish people that were coming to offer sacrifices, such that when Jesus came and he saw this, he flips out, goes outside, sits down, puts together a whip. Uh, It says he braided together a whip. We call that premeditated violence. He then goes in, uses this whip, not on the animals, but on the money changers too, as he's flipping the tables. You ever try and separate a a grown businessman from his money? You got to be a bit wild if that's going to happen. So he goes in there and, and loses his, doesn't lose his mind. He goes in there with righteous anger. It's a better phrase. And he says what? He says, 
This house, this temple where God is, was supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations. There was supposed to be a place that Gentiles could come. And you've pushed them out one level further because you actually don't care about those Gentiles. But God did. He saw fit that there would be a place for them. So now if you're not a Gentile but you're a Jewish person, um, what's next? Well, it depends. depends on if you're a man or a woman. And if you're a woman, then you, you stop in the next court, and it's, it's the women's court. Um, and that's where you would begin to do your praying and where you would go to. However, if you were a man or a man with his son, you would go all the way up to the altar. Oftentimes they would teach the son. Uh, it, it was a part of, of raising the son. Teach them how to kill the sacrificial lamb and to also put into their mind uh, the importance of, of forgiveness and atonement for sin and just and the penalty that, that sin incurs and the sacrifice would be made and the men could go all the way up toward uh, or, or right at that, that temple. Not all the way into the Holy of Holies, but right up to the temple and, and get all the way close to God. Um, that's the Old Testament. And, and Paul is saying to these people, hey, the gospel I brought you, the New Testament, the new covenant in Jesus' blood, once he died on the cross, and I told you that, that he has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall, and made one people in his body, that is the gospel. And don't you listen to anyone who's going to come and tell you different. That is the truth, and that is our joy, that is our hope, that is our glory, that we are one in Christ Jesus. And so he says to these people in Galatians uh, chapter 3 that, So in Christ Jesus you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. You're in Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to that promise. Um, how do you come close to God in the New Testament? It's a lot simpler question this time. Because it's the same answer for everyone in this room. It's through our faith in Christ Jesus and being counted unto him. And it levels the playing field, and we all are one in Christ Jesus. Does that make sense? Okay. And Paul is saying, I'm not going to waver on this message. I'm not going to go backwards on this message. I'm not going to create divisions where now that the cool kids come, I'm going to go hang out with this group and not necessarily associate with them. I'm not, not going like, to persecute those people, but I'm going to begin to separate myself out because that's going to go better for me. And Paul would look at that and say, you're, you're denying the gospel because the gospel caused you to live a different kind of a way. Now I'm going to bridge here and, uh, and forgive me for doing so. But there's a conversation that needs to happen around the objectification of women in evangelicalism. My wife says, it's interesting, this is the conversation that everyone is having in America, but not on Sunday mornings. Why is that? Because we're Peter, 
because I'm Cephas, because we don't know how to step out of the status quo where we all have learned to get along into something a little more radical, a little more simple, a little bit more Christ-like, where we are all one in Christ on a level playing field, but there will be some people that will call into us and say, you're not getting the formula right. That looks a little too liberal. What about male headship? What about guys leading? And the the answer here is we have a tradition that has been handed down to us that has taken what Paul wrote, which was principles. Paul just said here, there is no longer a law that separates out categories of people. There is no longer a law. You are all one. It's all grace. It's all faith. It's all Jesus. He does say in some places in churches, I I find men and I, I raise them up and appoint them to lead. And I have expectations that they would do it with character. And Paul has principles. Paul doesn't give laws. Jesus himself only gave one law. What was it? That you love your neighbor as yourself. Paul didn't come to give laws. Paul taught, and he taught principles, but we have been handed a tradition that is, that is separated out men and women in the church as if it's a law, as if we have to follow that to the letter in order to make God happy with us or accept us. That's what law is, right? And so we take it all the way back to the Reformers. I talked the other day about Calvin and Knox. I put their picture up on the board. You guys remember that? The picture in Geneva. While while John Knox was in Geneva, uh, he wrote a book called The First Blast of the Trumpet Against the Monstrous Regiment of Women. Um, I actually have it, but couldn't find it this morning, which which caused me a degree of anger because I'm not fully sanctified yet. Um, And he was writing this against women who presumed to be in in a... in a position of authority. Now notice the interesting thing as John Knox writes this, that he's writing it primarily against three women, uh, Mary de Guise, uh, the Dowager, Dowager Queen and Regent of Mary Queen of Scots, who was being raised at court in Paris, uh, and against Mary, who we would call Bloody Mary, Mary who's on the throne for a brief time in England, and is, is we call her Bloody Mary uh, because she used to drink tomato juice with celery in it. Um, uh, no, she was putting to death all sorts of Protestants, trying to reverse what had happened underneath her father uh, when he'd broken away from the Catholic Church. So we call her Bloody Mary because of the, the killings and the beheadings. Uh, John Knox writes his treatise basically against these women. What do they all share in common? Except for chromosomes and stuff like that. They're all Catholic. So you got to understand, there's a Catholic bias that the reformers have and, and that all of these women leaders, political leaders at that time, are also Catholic. And it makes it a lot easier for them to kind of put that whole thing out there. But, but the idea was saying things, um, for who can deny that it's repugnant to nature that the blind shall be appointed to lead and conduct such as uh, do they, that the weak, the sick, and impotent persons shall nourish and keep the whole uh, and strong. And finally, that the foolish, made and frenetic-like, shall govern the discreet and give counsel to such as of sober mind. 
And such be all women compared unto men in bearing of authority. For their sight, this is, it's in old English, I'm having trouble. For their sight in something regiment is but blindness. Their strength but weakness. Their counsel but foolishness. And their judgment frenetic, if it be rightly considered. We have embedded in our subconscious, I think, in the evangelical world, a hierarchy that we would deny on the surface that puts men above women. Not that we submit unto each other, husband and wife, submit unto each other, brothers and sisters, but that we have this bias towards men and that women, although they're equal, would be less than. That they can stop at this court in the temple as the men go and do the real business in the next court. And it's why we can have an uproar when someone takes a knee for the flag, but a deafening silence when we see the objectification of women show up in our country in ways that we should be shouting about, screaming about, or standing up to so that our witness as people watch us in this world and as our children watch us would measure up to the values that Paul said the gospel includes. That there is neither male nor female, slave nor free person, Jew nor Gentile. That our values would be such gospel values that we are one in Christ. That when we see that marred or defamed or somebody treated in a way that would reject the gospel truth of our unity in Christ. That our voices would follow to set it straight just like Paul called out Peter. And to say that is not okay. That's not locker room banter. And it's not okay for I don't care who we vote for in an election. When we shut the curtain, you get to vote, I get to vote in privacy. That is a, a right that Americans have that we have no fear of recrimination. Nobody's looking over my shoulder, going to throw me in prison someday because of how I voted. It's a beautiful right. In the public space, however, when we talk about impeaching one person because of lack of character... And then say that the other one deserves our forgiveness. Because, you know, no man's perfect. That that kind of conversation betrays to us that our hope is not in Christ, but it's in some kind of a political ideology, or our hope is in some kind of a party, or what our supreme value that we're finding unity around is fear. Fear that the wrong people might be put in power. Fear that those people might bring about the wrong kind of Supreme Court justices. Fear that it might bring about for me the state of affairs that I'm deathly afraid of. Now here's the interesting thing about faith and politics. If I'm going to ever give any kind of a sermon where I mention both those words in the same sermon. Faith and politics doesn't mean that your vote is in line with your faith values. Faith in politics ought to mean that regardless of what happens in this country, that you believe, that we believe that God is still sovereign and in control such that we're living by faith. Do you see the difference? Faith is, is not some neutered thing on paper that, that governs me. 
Faith is my trust in God that says, even if it looks bleak, even if I'm tempted toward fear, even if other people are trying to to nudge me on by fear, that I'm going to reject all of that and say, God, I know that you're still in control, that you won't fully forsake our people, and that I can walk by faith, that our church can walk by faith, that even if we're driven underground, we can still hold on to our faith, that nobody can take that from us. So no matter what happens in politics, God, I trust, just like the Christians in Thessalonica had to trust as being underneath the Roman government and occupation, that regardless of the political climate, that faith is something that we choose no matter how difficult. And we've forgotten that. We're not united by fear. We're not united by party. We're not united by anything in the church other than by being in Christ one body, without distinction, without hierarchy, without priority, and then secondary or tertiary categories. We're one. And there are not enough... Pete and I got on the phone last night and lamented how many evangelical leaders are involved in the spin game to protect a political leaning rather than the truth game of protecting the gospel that says it doesn't matter who it is, but when we see untruth in society, when we see our fellow brothers and sisters being damaged or hurt, when we see things that say your image of God somehow, your dignity is less than other people as the men are doing the political business, then we say something about it. I don't tell you how to vote. I don't tell you what party has got the best platform. I tell you that we don't remain silent when women are disparaged, just like Jesus didn't remain silent when women are disparaged. That's not a political comment. That's a comment of how we're going to govern ourselves in the church with regard to the way that uh, God has set up this world and Christ has formed his church. Because if we remain silent and allow those strange hierarchies to continue on, then we're, we're doing what Peter did. And in our silence, we're choosing uh, the categories where things are going to go along towards the status quo for us. And I don't want to be a preacher like that. Uh, I didn't endeavor to start a church so that I could be afraid of whether donors would like me or not. Whether someone would put me in a liberal camp or not. By the way, I'm not liberal. I'm conservative. I just have a conviction that most conservatives have lost, have lost their minds. So I'm creating a new kind of, a new kind of conservatism. Pete said he was going to come up with a name for it. Um, it's not that I've lost the gospel. It's that I have such a conviction that the gospel is the gospel. You understand that? The gospel is the gospel. That is where our hope is. Here's the thing. If our hope is misplaced, meaning we think it's gonna, that, that somehow our, our, our future is going to be established by political mechanisms and that, that we're so caught up in that that it rises, that that becomes our hope more than our hope in Christ, a misplaced hope will never lead to the joy of the Lord. A misplaced hope will never produce godly joy. Do you want to know why most people fight like cats and dogs about politics? Because it shows that they have a a, a misplaced hope. 
And in those conversations, there is no joy. Now, we are, um, we are a family. This is a body. We talked about Paul's nurture and love for that community. Um, you don't have to agree with me on anything. You don't have to agree with Pete on anything. But this is like the Thanksgiving table. When we disagree, we don't walk away from the table. We're one in Christ uh, by virtue of what he did for us, not by virtue of always agreeing with each other. So how do we be a family? How do we be the church? How do we be a witness to this city? We do it by hanging in there and being committed to each other in love by not walking away from the table. Pete told me a story recently about a church he worked at in Jefferson. Uh, the pastor, Jefferson, he's a lot older. He has much more credibility than I. So I'll use his words. And, and if you don't like him, it's, it's on him. But he used to always say to the church every Sunday that I love you. I absolutely love you. That doesn't mean I like you. Doesn't mean we're going to be friends. It doesn't mean we're going to hang out. But I'm committed to you. And I think there's something really beautiful there. I love you. I love you, period, meaning there's nothing you can do about it. It doesn't mean I'm going to like you or that you're going to like me. It doesn't mean that we're going to be friends. We might not even hang out. But it means that I'm committed to you. Uh, and I'm committed to us finding what the gospel is going to look like in our midst when we're not shading it to sides and angles to fit in with what culture might have for us. I'm committed to that. I pray that we could be uh, committed to that together.